Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in laboratory testing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to our Answers from the Lab podcast. As you can tell, I am not Dr. Bobby Pritt. She's away, so I'm going to fill in for her as sort of the host and moderator, if you will, uh, as opposed to the subject of the conversation. And I'm lucky today to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Matt Binnaker, who will introduce himself, uh, Matt and I, but just to mention that Dr. Binnaker worked on our leadership team for the department as our vice chair of practice. But Matt, maybe you want to give a brief introduction. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Maurice. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. I'm uh, Matt Binnaker. I direct the clinical virology lab at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And as Dr. Maurice mentioned, I work with him on our executive leadership team and putting together our strategies and plans for our department. And I'm vice chair of practice for the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. So help to oversee our laboratory operations here in our Minnesota campus. Yeah, and so Matt and I have been working side by side for the last many months in terms of standing up the testing that's been needed for COVID to help manage the pandemic, both for Mayo Clinic and also for all of our Mayo Clinic labs, patients that we serve. And in addition, you know, because of his role at Mayo Clinic and with virology as a molecular virologist has been really important voice for the country in terms of how to use testing to help manage the pandemic. And so really pleased that you're able to join us today, Matt. I think one of the questions that comes to mind and we've been fielding a lot really is around these new variants that are being described and where do they come from? Is this something that we should have expected? Is this something unique to COVID? And then what's the impact on testing? Yeah, happy to address it. It's a really, I think, relevant and timely topic. You know, with regards to whether we expected SARS-CoV-2 to result in mutations and variants, we did expect this to happen. SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus, so it's got an RNA genome, and we know that other viruses that have an RNA genome mutate over time, much like influenza, and so it was expected. Currently, there are a number of different variants that we're keeping a close eye on. One is coming out of the United Kingdom, and that variant has been shown to be more highly transmissible because the spike protein of that virus binds to the receptor on host cells with more efficiency. And so it leads to higher rates of transmission. There's another variant out of South Africa, which is also believed to be uh, spread more efficiently. And I think it's kind of uncertain at this point whether there's more severe disease that's related to either of those variants. And also the impact on vaccination is being closely watched. And then a third variant that's been in the news a lot is out of Brazil. And that's actually causing a second surge in cases in Brazil. Uh, in that area, they experienced a large surge early in the pandemic. And then this variant has emerged, which is causing a second large surge. So there's some 
speculation around the immunity that was developed in response to that first surge may not have either lasted long enough or been protective of this variant that's currently emerging. And we've seen all three of those in the United States, and it's there's some speculation that those may become the most prominent strains over the next few months. No, it's interesting that, I mean, that you laid us out. This is not unexpected. We see this with these RNA viruses in particular. And my understanding is that when we see this happening, the three concerns really are increased transmissibility with some of the new strains, increased virulence, meaning making people more sick with the new strains, and ability for evading prior immune responses or propagation in previously exposed. And it, it seems like we're seeing mostly the first and maybe the second from what we know. Again, this isn't new. This doesn't make SARS-CoV-2, the super virus. And number two is that even though there is some concern about the vaccines might be less effective, it's still a prior immune response is going to be helpful against these variants too, just like we see with other respiratory viruses, I would think, right? Yeah, that's correct, Dr. Maurice. I mean, the the vaccines that have been developed for SARS-CoV-2 and have started to be implemented generate a very robust immune response. So if we take the, the Pfizer vaccine, for example, the early clinical trials data showed about 95% effectiveness in preventing severe COVID disease or hospitalization. With these variant strains, it's highly unlikely that it's going to go from 95 to zero. The difference may be 95 to 90 or 95 to 85% protection against variants as they begin to evolve. And, you know, I think about influenza, we have to get our annual influenza vaccine because that virus changes over time. It's probably going to be similar with SARS-CoV-2 that the vaccines we're getting today aren't going to be as protective against the strains that are circulating 12 months from now. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if for the next few years at least we have to get an annual booster that includes the most up-to-date strains that are circulating. Got it. That's really helpful. One of the other questions that does come up with this is around testing. Do the tests that we have now, do they detect these new strains, number one? And, and number two, you know, how much should we be working to try and detect these new strains with the types of tests that do that, the sequencing tests? Yeah, it's a really important question. I think everybody in the laboratory profession that's doing COVID testing is really focused on this issue right now. The good news is that the vast majority of tests for SARS-CoV-2 include multiple gene targets. So not only are they testing for one of the genes in SARS-CoV-2, but they're often including a second gene or a third gene. So if there are changes in the RNA genome and it might impact detection by one of those gene targets, the other two or multiple targets in that test will kind of serve as fail-safes. So that's the good news is that the majority of tests that are being performed across the the country have multiple gene targets. To your point, though, about whether we should be specifically testing for these variants, I think it depends. If we continue to see good evidence that the strains lead to a different clinical outcome, so do they cause more severe disease, do they result in more hospitalization, or do they result in a significantly lower vaccine effectiveness, then it becomes really important to be able to know whether a patient is infected with the Brazil strain or the South African strain. If it turns out that it's more just a transmission 
enhancement, I think it becomes a little bit less important to specifically call out on the variant level. That being said, we are looking into sequencing assays that we can bring in-house because we want to be prepared in the event that it becomes clinically important to be able to tell physicians which strain their patients infected with. Yeah, no, that's, you know, that's really helpful. And I think that one of the things that I've heard and been part of a little bit uh, on the kind of the national stage is, well, what's the role of testing going forward with vaccines coming out? I think your point, you think about Manaus in Brazil, if we continue to do testing, we could see changes in viral transmission that will give us clues as to whether or not we need to look for some of these strains. To me, that's going to be really important, as well as post-vaccination. If people get an upper respiratory tract infection post-vaccination, and it turns out it's COVID, you know, we're going to have to probably want to understand what specifically that strain is. Right. So there'll be a continued role just for routine testing. The whole concept that this isn't going to go away overnight with vaccines, that we're going to be going through a process. Mm -hmm. But also, I think, to stress that one of the best ways to stop the emergence of strains is to get people vaccinated so they don't get infected in the first place, right? That's absolutely right. It's really a race, I think, against time right now. We, we know that these variants are in the U.S. and probably circulating in our communities, maybe not at as high levels as some of the more common strains. So the more that we can get the population vaccinated, the more that we can drive down infections, the virus has to get into an infected person in order to replicate its genome and result in mutations and result in further transmission. So if we can stop that point in the transmission cycle with more vaccination rates, we can help to prevent emergence of new variant strains. And uh, that's really what we should be focusing right now. Got it. Yeah, that, thank you. That's super helpful. Uh, you know, one question that I just got today by email, and I was looking over to my email to make sure I got it right, is, you know, as more and more people have been infected, I guess the, the question that is coming up is, what's the role of testing after an infection to say if someone is recovered from COVID? Does testing after infection play a role? And what are your thoughts on that? Once a person has had a COVID infection, I think that the chance of or incidence of a reinfection is pretty low. We know that it happens. There's been documented case reports of people suffering what appear to be reinfections months after an initial infection, but it doesn't seem to be the norm. That being said, I think testing still has a role because even if someone has had a natural infection with SARS-CoV-2, that immune response probably isn't a long duration. So it's not going to last for years and years. So that immunity is gonna wane over time, which means they could be infected with SARS-CoV-2 again. And so we'll need to be able to identify patients that have been infected as a means of helping to curb or prevent transmission to others. So testing will continue to play a role. I think it's going to look differently as more people uh, receive the vaccine. I think obviously as we reach a 70 to 80% vaccination level in the population, our testing will, will change. My understanding is that after an infection, a symptomatic infection, in that immediate post-infection window, you can pick up the virus for some time afterwards. And that's why it's probably remnants of the virus, not active viral infection. And so that's why kind of post-infectious testing to go back to work, for instance, really dropped off as the recommendations. Am I still right on that one? 
That's right. Yeah, we, we know now that patients can test positive by molecular tests like PCR for weeks and sometimes months after an infection because that viral RNA can persist for quite some time. So we no longer recommend that an individual be tested and proved to be negative by a molecular test before they're released from isolation or quarantine. We follow more of a time-based or symptom-based strategy instead of a test-based strategy. Got it. Yeah, that's, yeah. I know that's confusing for people. It's, it's still, it's, even for me, it's a confusing topic. So last but not least, because we've talked a lot about testing. I know going into the fall, there was real concern from Dr. Fauci and other national leaders about the upcoming flu season and how that would really complicate management of the pandemic. And it's been asked, so what has happened with flu season? And it, just any insights into that? Yeah, this is probably one of the more interesting things uh, over the past few months is what's unfolded with influenza. So in August, September, October, we were very concerned about a potential, we called it a, a twindemic uh, between influenza and COVID. Having both viruses circulating at high levels in the population, of course, could have put a huge strain on the healthcare system. So we actually put into place a testing strategy where beginning in early December, we were going to test every symptomatic individual for both COVID and influenza. And we did that. And over the past six weeks, we performed around 20,000 tests for influenza in patients with symptomatic illness. Interestingly, we didn't detect any positive influenza cases out of those 20,000 tests. We detected quite a few COVID cases. That tells me that influenza, at least here in the upper Midwest, just did not get entrenched into the communities, probably uh, is a result of a lot of the uh, pre uh, preventative measures that people are taking, masking, uh, social distancing, probably also shows that SARS-CoV-2 is more highly transmissible than influenza. You know, a lot of people have asked, well, why are we continuing to see COVID transmission but not influenza. Well, it goes back to one, I think SARS-CoV-2 is more highly transmissible. Two, we have some pre-existing immunity to influenza from prior vaccines and circulating natural infection immunity. So there's a, there's a lot of different factors that play here. But one thing I think that stands out is that if we take preventative measures against respiratory viruses and help break that transmission cycle, we can have a huge impact. And we've seen that this year. It's really intriguing, and it's kind of like, as we look ahead, there'll be lots of deconstruction after we get through COVID about what we learned and how we're going to do things differently, and I think that that will be an important part of the puzzle will be what hap what didn't happen with influenza and what are some of the things, and like you've said before, it might change behaviors for me personally, I think. If there's someone in my house, you know, looking down the road once we get through COVID, if there's someone in my house who's, who's ill, I think either we're going to have more people working from home because there's a lot of workplace transmission, or, you know, if I go out, I might think about wearing a mask just to make sure I don't spread it to somebody else. Lots of silver linings out there so for us to, to look for. So anything on testing I, I didn't ask that I should have? No, I think we covered a lot of the important topics. I mean, again, as we get more people in the population uh, vaccinated against SARS-CoV-2, we're gonna see case rates go down. We're gonna see hospitalization rates go down. If you look at you know, data coming out of countries like Israel that are doing, a, I think, a really fantastic job of getting high rates of their population immunized, we're seeing a dramatic impact on the number of COVID cases and the number of hospitalizations due to COVID. So that's the good news. 
testing is going to change and we're going to have to adapt as uh, different strains become more prominent. And so I know that test manufacturers and laboratories are keeping a really close eye on those strains to make sure we keep up and, and not missing cases. So, you know, the, the situation continues to evolve and we need to do the same thing. Yeah. And so we'll still have stuff to talk about here, at least for the next couple of months, probably. Absolutely. Well, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. I'm no Dr. Pritt, but hopefully I did a reasonable job standing in. So thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>